Welcome aboard the Shipshape Podcast, your ultimate destination for marine wisdom and expertise. Our skilled crew, comprised of top boating journalists and experts, is committed to delivering informative and captivating content week after week. We're eager to connect with and learn from our fellow mariners, and we encourage you to share our podcast with your friends. Remember, word of mouth is our lifeblood, and if you enjoy an episode, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. By doing so, you're helping us forge a robust community of mariners who can learn, collaborate, and exchange their experiences out on the water. Welcome to the Shipshape Podcast. Today, we have a special guest who has dedicated her life to understanding and conserving the ocean. Meet Jen Kennedy, the executive director and co-founder of the Blue Ocean Society. Over the past 26 years, she has worked tirelessly both on land and aboard whale watching vessels, educating thousands and advocating for the protection of marine life. From her early fascination with whales to her current endeavors in marine conservation, Jen's journey is a testament to the profound connection one can have with this vast blue expanse. So listeners, get ready to embark on a deep sea journey of knowledge and inspiration with our guest. Your two co-hosts today are Meryl Shred. I'm a liveboard on a Toshing Toshiba 36 in Boston, Massachusetts, and T. Hey guys, welcome to the podcast. Talhabhati here. And today we have Jen, who's going to be telling us all about the whales. Welcome to the show, Jen. Thanks for having me. Where so Jen, are you where... joining us from? Uh, I am in my office in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. So what inspired you to get into the marine industry in the first place? I know that you had grown up in Rochester, New York, and that's quite far away from the ocean. Yes, it is. It is uh, pretty far from the ocean. I grew up on Lake Ontario, though, uh, with parents and grandparents that were avid boaters and uh, just loved always being on the water, loved being on a boat any chance I could. And for some reason, I also had an interest in whales. I always had an interest in animals. And I was always the one that was, you know, petting any dog that walked by. We always had a lot of family pets, but um, I was also interested in whales for some reason. So I remember, you know, reading in things like National Geographic about whales and thinking, gosh, it'd be really cool to see a whale someday. So I went to Cornell University for my undergraduate. And my after my junior year, I spent the summer up in the White Mountains of New Hampshire working for a forestry professor and uh, basically helping to measure trees in uh, one of the last remaining places of old growth forest up in the White Mountains, which was really cool. And then on our days off, we'd kind of travel around New England since I hadn't spent much time up here. And so during one of these travels, uh, we did a day trip down to Boston, uh, ran into another Cornell, uh, I guess he was a recent graduate, and he had just gotten off a whale watch boat. And he's like, I've been on a boat talking about whales to people all day. And I was like, gosh, that is like the coolest job. So soon after that, I went on my first whale watch in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. When I graduated, I uh, applied for a number of jobs and internships and got accepted in an internship in Gloucester, Mass. And uh, that was to study whales, but the internship didn't start until the winter time. So I had a whole summer ahead of me and I decided it would be fun and interesting to come up here and work on a whale watch boat for the summer. So that's what I did. I worked on uh, one of the local tour boats in Portsmouth that had a whale watch at the time and spent my whole summer whale watching. And by the end of the summer, I'd started filling in as whale watch naturalists. So talking on the, the microphone, kind of interpreting what the whales were doing, helping to collect data. And it just kind of snowballed from there. And can you tell us the experience of when you saw your first whale? Yeah, it was pretty amazing. And actually, on my first whale watch, my mom was with me. She had actually uh, come to visit up in Portsmouth. And um, so she said, let's, let's finally go on a whale watch. And so we went on a whale watch. And I uh, saw some humpback whales, we saw an ocean sunfish, which are really crazy looking animals. And she still says that I once we saw that whale, I mean, I was just amazed uh, how big they are, how graceful they are. And she said, I looked at her at that point and said, this is what I want to do. I want to work on a whale watch boat and I want to do things with whales. So they're still amazing creatures. I don't get out on the boat as much anymore as I spend a lot of time in the back end of things at the office doing things like fundraising and 
admin and stuff for the nonprofit organization. But when I do get on the boat, I'm still always amazed at the size of the whales that are out there, how graceful they are, how resilient they are with all the threats that we present to them out in the ocean. And they're just amazing animals. Hmm. So Jen, I know so many people who it's, it's almost like a pipe dream. They're like, oh, when I grow up, I want to be a marine biologist. And what give, give us a little more detail on your education, like your undergrad, et cetera. What, what did you pursue? Sure. Um, yeah, I really had an interest in environmental science growing up and actually had a lot of interest in writing and art too, but I ended up going to Cornell University as a natural resources major and kind of focusing on wildlife ecology. So once I graduated, so while I was there, actually I had a professor that did a lot of work studying moose and that was another favorite animal of mine. I was like, whales or moose? And so I learned a lot about wildlife there and, and natural resource management and ecology uh, then, like I said earlier, I started working on the boat, and then I had an opportunity to get my master's degree at UNH, so I got a master of science, and there, again, focused on resource administration and management. That was a, There was somebody that was looking for a grad student, a professor there. I ended up working with him and doing a lot of social science research, and my master's thesis actually involved studying cooperative research between fishermen and scientists, which was really I don't know if it was just getting going, but it was uh, a pretty hot topic at that time. So scientists and uh, fishermen partnering up to answer some scientific questions and, you know, getting some grant funding to do that and kind of seeing how that program all works. So I focused um, my thesis on that, but also did a lot of things like survey work and just studying the way humans interact with the environment and, you know, also still seeing the, the importance of just making people aware of the fact that the ocean is here and not that far from a lot of people, uh, the wealth of marine life that we have here in the Gulf of Maine and how important it is to protect it and how important the health of the ocean is to the health of all of us, no matter where we live. Mm. And do you think the like your degrees prepared you for what you know actually happened out in the ocean? I think they did. They gave me a, an interesting perspective on you know, the interactions between human and the environment and, and why some policy decisions are made, which is certainly, you know, things that affect us now in the work that I do. And um, I had a pretty good background knowledge on different types of wildlife. And, and then I once I got up here, I did a lot of reading and reading scientific papers and current events and just talking to different people and meeting other scientists and whale watch naturalists and then just physically observing the marine life out there at the time I was going out on the boat six or seven days a week, most of the summer, and just looking at what was going on and observing the whales and their behavior. So after your tour on the whale watch boat, then what happened? So when we did our, our whale research internship in Gloucester, that was where I met uh, Blue Ocean Society's co-founder, Diana Schulte, who still works with us as our director of research. And we did our internship from January to May. And after that, we were both working on two different whale watch boats in New Hampshire. Uh, she was on one, I was on one in Portsmouth, but we were both going out there and collecting data and sharing it with organizations that didn't always have the time to do much with it because they were kind of in a backlog of their own data. And so we were out there taking pictures at the time. We were still using film cameras and uh, taking pictures and identifying the whales and writing down the locations where we saw them and then sending all this information off to other organizations where it was kind of sitting for a while. And um, we were the only ones out in an area called Jeffrey's Ledge, which is a underwater mountain range about 20 miles offshore the coast of Maine, New Hampshire, and Massachusetts. It's a really important feeding area for whales during the summer, but nobody was really studying it except for Diana and I on these two whale watch boats that were the most close in proximity to Jeffrey's Ledge. So we were out there collecting this data and we were like, we're the only ones out here. Why don't we try to take this information that we're learning and do something with it ourselves rather than just sending it to other organizations. Along the way, um, the whale watch companies we were working for, they were getting a lot of school field trips during the spring. And uh, a lot of the schools were requesting them to come to the school ahead of time and talk about whales and kind of get the students prepared for what to expect when they went out on a whale watch. And so then they started sending us. They were like, well, you're the naturalist, you're the education people. Why don't you go out and talk to these schools? And I really still clearly remember I was in Raymond, New Hampshire, which is probably about 40 minutes from the coast. We had, I think there were eighth grade students and there was about 80 students in the room and we were doing a presentation for them about whales. And one of the first things I said is, how many of you have been on a whale watch before? And hardly anybody raised their hand. I said, well, how many of you have been on a 
boat in the ocean before. Hardly any of them raised their hand. So out of the 80 kids that we were looking at, maybe four or five had actually been to the ocean, which was less than an hour away from them. And so it really made us <laughs> really made us think about you know, we know how important the ocean is, how it is, how important it is to protect it, but how can these people know if they've never even seen it or seen any of the animals that are out there? So when we started, Diana and I saw that there was this need to start an organization, maybe to do education and research, really locally focused, but not only just doing research and, you know, publishing papers and, and getting information out to scientists, but getting it out to the public in as real time as possible and telling them the stories, what we were learning, what we were seeing out in the water, how cool the whales are, how much different kinds of marine life that we have, even within a few miles of the coastline. And so started doing um, educational programs and still working on the whale watches and collecting data. And you know, obviously you've made a career of this and you've had a ton of experiences and there's a ton of learnings, but can you tell our listeners why we should care about whales? Yeah, whales are really important. I mean, the ocean as a whole is really important to all of us, you know, providing food and recreation opportunities, helping regulate climate, helping absorb carbon. Um, so the ocean has a huge function and then whales have a huge role within that as well. I mean, not only personally, I believe it's important to protect animals you know, just because they, everything's connected. And um, if you lose one species, then that impacts everything else. But there's been a lot more work on the really important role that whales play in the food chain and in nutrient cycling in the ocean recently. And, you know, one of the things they found is it's something called the whale pump, basically. And it's how whales will feed uh, further down, you know, they'll feed on fish or krill um, further down in the water column and then they'll come up to the surface and they're pooping at that point. And as they're pooping out, they're basically pooping out the nutrients, you know, all the things they don't need. And it that's providing nutrients for the plankton and then the rest of the food chain more towards the ocean surface. So they call this whale pump because it's kind of this circular function where, you know, the whales are pooping at the surface. It's providing nutrients for the plankton, which is providing uh, food for the fish, and then the whales eat the fish, and it's kind of this endless chain that keeps going. And also the whales basically store carbon also. So in, when whales die, most of the time they'll sink down to the ocean bottom, taking the carbon with them. So the less whales we have, the more likely we are to see more impacts from you know extra carbon in the atmosphere. Mm, so I definitely saw a video about how when they call it a whale fall, I think, when the whale yeah. goes all the way to the bottom of the ocean and then disintegrates over like a decade or so. And I think that's the most anybody said poop in like one sentence ever on our show. <laughs> <laughs> but, oh, God. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, can you, can you give us just like what sort of, you said you collect a lot of data. What sort of data are we talking about? What sort of data is necessary? And what, what can we even do with the data? I mean, they're, they're living their own lives. So what are we going to do with it? Right. Yeah. So when we're out on the boat, uh, we're collecting information on where the whales are, first of all. So what habitats they're using and, and what they're doing over time. So we've actually been collecting this data since the late 1990s. So it's providing a really good uh, look at which habitats whales are using over time. And one of the things we've noticed, for example, is that the whales seem to be coming closer and closer to shore, which has a lot of implications for interactions with things like uh, vessels that are traveling through the water, fishing gear that might be set closer to shore. Also things when they start sighting offshore wind, uh, things like that. Knowing where their habitats are is really important that we can have less of an impact on them. But we also identify the individuals. So pretty much any whale species can be identified by their natural markings. So humpback whales, for example, they're kind of famous for the markings on their tail. When they dive down, they'll lift their tail up. Their tail is about 16, 17 feet across. And on the bottom, they have these markings that range from all white to all black or somewhere in between. And it's just like our fingerprint. So it's different for every whale out there. And so since the mid-1970s, scientists have been cataloging these humpback whales, these different individuals, by taking photographs of the tail, uh, actually giving them names. And there's been uh, many thousands of humpback whales that have been cataloged over the years. And we're finding in our work, for example, you know, just looking at it year after year, we do see some of the same whales year after year. They seem to come to the same areas. And so that way we can learn more about their life histories as well. So we've had whales that come up here and they'll have a calf uh, with them because the humpback whales will bring the calves up and, and 
be up here during the feeding season with their calf pretty much most of the summer. And then oftentimes the calf will be weaned by the end of the summer, early fall. And then when we see them with a calf again, you know, in a subsequent year, we can learn more about reproductive rates and how often they're giving birth and whether it seems to be a healthy uh, rate at which they're reproducing and, and adding to this population and track these animals over time. So you can not only track individuals, which is really cool, but then gain information about the population as a whole. And so with that information, we use it in education, but we also share it with researchers around the Gulf of Maine and then in other parts of the world so that it's, uh, you know, just adds to that wider base of scientific knowledge about these species and also, we can track any human impacts as well. So say a whale, we've had situations where a whale unfortunately gets hit by a boat but survives. And when they get hit by a boat, often there's a scar, some sort of scar. And so then we can track that scar over time to make sure everything is healing and kind of see the rate at which these whales can recover from these interactions. And I have two questions here. One, how old do whales get? And two, you know, obviously through all this research and data gathered, what has been one of the more surprising revelations that you guys have seen? So as far as how old they get, we, we don't know for sure for a lot of them. And again, since whales often sink when they die, even if it's a whale that we've studied from the year we know it was born, we often don't know if they actually die. So I've heard estimates for humpback whales anywhere from 70 to 100 years or more. The bowhead whale, which is more of an Arctic species, they are thought to be the longest living whale species, and some estimates have put them at over 200 years. Wow. So really long-lived animals, even longer than us, probably, in many cases. I think, you know, just one thing that we've noticed recently that we're, we're talking a lot about is the change over time. And, you know, we didn't know it at the time we started collecting the data over, you know, in the late 1990s, how much, you know, the Gulf of Maine was going to be warming and how we are going to be seeing these climate change impacts, you know, in our lifetime. You know, so we've started seeing, um, like I said, whales have been moving closer to shore. As far as we know, this is anecdotally like not published yet, but we've had different species. So we never used to see common dolphins, even though they're called common dolphins. They weren't really common here uh, until probably five or 10 years ago. Now we've seen them almost every year. We've started seeing more sea turtles than we, we used to maybe see one or two sea turtles a year. A couple of years ago, we saw bunches of them. <laughs> so um, and, you know, more jellyfish in the area, which I know people are experiencing in other areas. So I think... It's not this like huge light bulb major finding, but it is really important information and looking at, you know, how things have changed just in the last 25 years or so, and then what we might be able to expect going forward and maybe help us prepare for that. And Jen, can you shed a little light on, because obviously these whales are giant creatures, correct me if I'm wrong, but they don't just hang out in the Gulf of Maine. They probably go all over the world. How, how do they navigate you know, these giant oceans and, and are there like social structures within them and hierarchies and stuff? Like what is, what is whale life like? Yeah. And a lot of it depends on the species. So there's 90 ish species of whales worldwide. And I say ish, <laughs> which I hate doing, but as scientists study whale populations over time, and especially when they start being able to get um, genetic samples and, and look more closely at populations in the areas that they're inhabiting. They sometimes will take a, a species that they thought were, you know, one whole species in a large area and maybe split it into separate species. So the kind of number of species is always changing. So of those species, there's four or five that we see most frequently here in our area of the Gulf of Maine, but around 20 different species have been seen in the Gulf of Maine overall. So we just have a really small subsection of the whales that are worldwide. And with a lot of the whales, even though they're the largest animals on the planet, we don't even know where they go all the time. So humpback whales are pretty well documented. They tend to travel kind of slowly, pretty close to shore. They're easy to identify compared to some of the other whale species. So we know that the humpback whales that we have here in the summer in the Gulf of Maine, they can bounce all over the Gulf of Maine. So they might be seen off of Cape Cod, but then they might we might see them here off the coast of New Hampshire. Then somebody else might see them you know, for a couple of weeks off of Bar Harbor, or Nova Scotia, and they kind of move around. We presumably based on wherever their prey is the best concentration or whatever their preference is, because this is their feeding season during the summer where they're just their main activity is looking for prey, which often is small schooling fish and krill. 
there are more other humpback whales that go further north off of Canada and up more towards Iceland. And then all the whales that are in the North Atlantic in the summertime, further north, they will head down to the Caribbean in the wintertime. So winter is their breeding season where the adults go down and that's where they mate and have their calves. Calves are born down there. The gestation period is about 11 months. So a female's pregnant for nearly a year. So she gets pregnant one winter down south. She'll head up, feed all summer long, and then migrate back down south to give birth to her calf, which stays with her for anywhere from a year to a few years. Just really depends. So humpback whales are pretty well studied. There's different populations of humpback whales. So we have what's called the West Indies population, which is here kind of migrating from our area in the Gulf of Maine up in Canada and a little bit further north down to the Caribbean. And then there's other populations. There's like humpback whales in the Pacific. And uh, whales are found in pretty much all the major oceans of the world. Just depends on the species. We have um, fin whales out here as well, and they are the second largest species on the planet. They're about 70 feet long, so really mm. impressive and, and great, graceful animals. Um, but we don't know a lot about where they go in the wintertime. There have been a few seen off of uh, the Mid-Atlantic, a few seen off of Florida. They don't all seem to go to some one area on mass and breed with each other or anything like that. We just um, haven't found any specific kind of winter ground for them. So they might just migrate further offshore, maybe further south, kind of spread out a little bit. And, you know, they just might go to areas where there's not any boats, especially during the winter time and the cold weather and uh, really hard to track. Ahoy investors! Are you on the lookout for a unique opportunity to invest in a thriving industry? Set your sights on ShipShape, the innovative platform connecting boat and yacht owners with top-notch marine service providers. Our team is committed to revolutionizing the marine repair and refit market in North America. But we can't sail these seas alone. With your support, we can enhance our platform and create a significant impact in the industry. Don't let this exciting investment opportunity drift away. Contact us today to learn more about joining our voyage. Reach out to us at info at shipshape.pro. Can you um, talk about the intelligence of these whales? I mean, obviously, there's this kind of thing going around about the orcas attacking boats. And, you know, that would seem to say that there's some decent intelligence, I guess. But can you kind of elaborate on that? Yeah. So intelligence isn't my area of background. <laughs> I do believe, you know, they are as intelligent as they need to be to be a whale. Uh, whales actually have pretty small brains compared to their size, but they seem to be able to get around. And uh, there was a question earlier that I think I forgot to answer as far as navigation. Toothed whales like dolphins, porpoises, killer whales, which you just mentioned, they tend to use echolocation to navigate. So sending out these high frequency sounds that bounce off of whatever's out around them. The baleen whales, like humpback whales and fin whales, they might use sound to navigate, like maybe bouncing sounds off of uh, underwater seamounts and things like that, but they don't seem to use an actual like high-pitched echolocation like a dolphin would. Um, so they seem to be pretty good at all those things. So I think they're pretty intelligent. There is some... I just listened to a really good podcast about the orca situation. There's a marine mammal science podcast also. I can recommend another podcast on here, but and they talk about the um, orcas and the orcas ramming boats and um, a lot of the misinformation that's out there and um, how the fact that there's, I think, 40 orcas in that population and only a handful have really done any of that behavior but they think even though there's you know stories out there about orcas getting revenge for things humans have done to them and stuff um they think it probably has more to do with some sort of play or social behavior and they're really curious about the boats and the more humans try to deter them and provoke you know have a reaction probably the more likely they're going to continue to do it so the scientist that was on that podcast was basically saying one of the things people could do is just you know stop having such a, a major reaction i know that's hard if you're on the boat and there's an orca ramming it but um if people could maybe pare down i guess people have been like throwing diesel fuel on them and setting off firecrackers and wow. some really horrendous things um and the more people do that the more interesting the whole thing is to the orcas so uh the less people can do things like that she said maybe they'll you know sometimes they actually have these fad behaviors well they'll 
do something because they think it's interesting. And then as soon as it's kind of run its course and they get bored, they'll go on to something else. And, and that could be the case with that, although it has been happening for several years now. So people are still trying to figure it out. Don't always believe everything you read in all the online mm. sources or news sources. Yeah, they're like, ooh, fireworks. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so two questions. One sort of off what you were telling us a little while ago about how they're moving around. Um, are they moving in schools or are, is it like a nuclear family situation? Like what, how, how does that happen? And then the second sort of thing is how, how do they communicate with each other? Is it more like echolocation and stuff or like dolphins like clicking with each other? Like what sort of communication do these guys have? Yeah. Um, so as far as the family, so the animals that gather in pods and kind of move around together, those are more of the toothed whales. So there's 70 or so species of toothed whales, which includes dolphins, porpoises, the killer whales or orcas, sperm whales. Um, so those are basically just the whales that have teeth and they catch their fish, uh, their prey one or two at a time um, and often work together in these groups. And depending on the species, some of them are Family pods, like the Atlantic white-sided dolphins that we have in our area, we think that it's mostly females and their young that kind of hang out in a pod. And then there's males that hang out in separate pods. With killer whales or orcas, they have a family pod as well. With the baleen whales, these larger whales like blue whales, fin whales, humpback whales, minke whales, these whales have plates of baleen, which is like this fringe that hangs in their mouth. It's made out of keratin, just like our fingernails and horses' hooves. And it has this hairy fringe on the inside, but it's smooth on the outside. And the whales need this. It's basically a strainer inside their mouth. And they need this because they're eating um, sometimes thousands of fish at once. And so when they feed, they'll gulp in a huge mouthful of fish and then they can't drink all the salt water because just like with us, it would make them sick to drink too much salt water. So they actually have to move the salt water out of their mouth, but get the fish inside. So they'll use their tongue and kind of squish up their, you know, lower throat and use that to push the water out. The water goes out in between the baleen plates, but the fish gets trapped inside and the whale just swallows it whole. And these animals, since they're eating so much food, they usually spread out quite a bit. So occasionally you'll see a whole bunch of whales feeding in an area that usually means there's tons of fish around, you know, really enough for everybody. A lot of the times when we see whales out there, we'll see one humpback whale or one fin whale, sometimes a few scattered around a pretty large area, but they don't They'll have temporary associations where we might see two or three whales together and that, so we call that associations, that association might last a few minutes, might occasionally last a few days or a few weeks, but um, is kind of unstable over time. So you had mentioned earlier that basically the whales are engaged to the health of the ocean and clearly you've seen kind of this shift where whales get closer, you know, different migrant patterns. But can you talk a little bit on kind of the global population of whales? Is it on the decline or is it steady? What's that look like? Yeah, again, it really depends on the species. There are some increasing, like, for example, humpback whales. Again, the populations in our area were doing so well that they moved their status off of endangered. So they're still considered a threatened species, but they're no longer basically um, considered an endangered species. There's other humpback populations in other areas of the world that are still considered endangered. So, so I think with all the species, there are not many that have recovered all the way if they were hunted before um, during whaling days. There's not many that have recovered all the way back to where they were you know, before whaling happened. But some species are are doing well. Like I said, the humpback whale, um, we have the North Atlantic right whale in the Gulf of Maine that is not doing very well at all. There's less than 350 remaining. The most concerning thing is that there's less than 100 females that are able to reproduce. And, you know, the whole species hinges on you know, these few females if they're healthy enough to reproduce. And they're reproducing at it's, it's taking them longer and longer to basically get pregnant and um, have a calf. Their uh, interval in between calves is increasing just because the population really isn't healthy enough to thrive the way it should. And then they're um, very slow moving species. That's why whalers hunted them in the first place nearly to extinction. And um, because of that, they're even more susceptible to things like getting hit by vessels or, um, you know, rolling into fishing gear that's out there in the ocean and getting entangled. And so there are species like that that are having a real problem that we really need to be aware of and do something about before they go extinct. 
Hmm. So I just want you to elaborate on that a little more. How have human activities such as shipping and fishing impacted the behavior and habitats of these whales? So shipping, basically uh, vessel strikes and entanglement and fishing gear are the two biggest causes of death for whales worldwide. And then there's also, you know, a variety of other factors such as ocean noise. Um, a lot of scientists are studying, which might not, um, you know, noise in the ocean might not necessarily kill a whale outright, but it might do things like, you know, if there's too much noise in an area. They might be blocked from hearing, you know, their prey in the water or being able to find a mate or, um, you know, it might alter their behavior in some other way somehow pollution in the water, you know, just different kinds of chemicals and pollutants that are in the water that, you know, again, might not kill them quickly, but could compromise their health in a way that they're not able to do other things. And they might be more liable to get severely injured or die if something else happens, like they are entangled by gear or they do get hit by a boat. So um, there's a lot more study, not just on vessel strikes and entanglement and how to prevent them, but a lot more study now in the cumulative impacts, um, which has been interesting and sad, but exciting to see over the years going to scientific conferences where there's uh, a lot more focus now on, on all these different impacts that uh, could be leading to, you know, kind of poor health overall for certain populations. You know, the scary thing is when you have a number of different factors, it's hard to figure out what the main cause is and actually, you know, what you can do about it. But to kind of go back to what I originally said, you know, it is still, you know, vessel strikes and entanglement are the two major causes of death. So, you know, there's things that you know scientists and industry members have been working really hard to figure out how to um, have humans and whales coexist in the ocean there's been situations like for the northern right whale for example where major shipping lanes have been moved in some areas because it was demonstrated that you know these large ships are going through these areas where whales were feeding and this is where data can really come in handy if even if it's just collected off of whale watch boats if there's whale watch boats that are documenting whales over and over and over in these areas that are major shipping lanes, um, then maybe the shipping lanes can be moved, you know, just slightly so that the whales are less likely to be impacted. Uh, there's also been rules in place at certain times a year where ships have to slow down to 10 knots or less just because when they do, if they do hit a whale at that speed, it's less likely to be fatal. Um, there's a lot in the news about scientists and fishermen working together um, to try to find a solution to the whale entanglement issue. Um, really, and that's an issue worldwide, you know, wherever there's fishing and whales in the same area, there is an entanglement problem. So, you know, trying to figure out if there's different types of gear that could be used, like developing what's called ropeless gear or on-demand gear, uh, which would be used to catch lobsters, which kind of eliminates some of the vertical lines that are in the water that seem to be the biggest problem for whales. Hmm. So perhaps a slightly lighter topic, um, <laughs> but it, I, it might just be like just as contentious, is that there's apparently there's a debate on the ethics of whale watching as well. And some say that even that stresses the animals and disrupts their natural behaviors. <laughs> Given that you guys, you know, have so much involvement in whale watching trips, what's your stance on this? Yeah, it's, it's a tough one. Um, whale watching can definitely, you know, stress whales out. There's a lot of sound in the water, especially if there's a loud, you know, engine that's revving in the water. Um, you know, one of the things we do, the boats that we work on at our organization follow, um, there's actually no whale watch regulations in the Gulf of Maine. What there is is guidelines uh, that NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, has issued just um, talking about speed at which we should approach whales and always paralleling, you know, the course of the whale, not cutting them off, not... You know, putting the engines in neutral uh, with most species when they get within 100 feet. So we do follow all that. And, you know, I think um, definitely I can see where situations where it, it would harm the whales, especially if there's like, you know, I've seen cases in the past where there's been one whale in an area and it's surrounded by whale watch boats. In that case, if, if the boat that we work on, you know, approached the area, we would definitely stand back until, you know, everybody else moved out of the way. But on the other hand, you know, each of these whale watch boats are speaking to millions of people. And this is probably the chance for many of them to just see a whale for the first time or maybe for the only time in their life. So we have to figure out what the balance is between, you know, impacting the whales and 
teaching those people and inspiring them to want to protect whales when they get off the boat. So I think if you whale watch responsibly and, you know, we always try to keep our distance from the whales. We often have whales approach us and probably because we're, we're um, you know, sitting on a patch of water and their uh, prey is right underneath us. But sometimes they come near us. They don't seem bothered by us at all. And um, if they do seem bothered by us, then we go somewhere else. So I think you can whale watch responsibly and kind of, you know, balance that impact that you have with the fact that um, you're teaching so many people about these whales and why they're important. So I think it is good to whale watch as long as the, the operator is responsible, kind of having the best interest of the whales in mind, but also there's a good education on board and, and ideally research on board as well. So you're not only teaching people about the whales, but collecting data on the whales and learning about their behavior and then sharing that information with other educators and scientists so we can all learn more. So Jen, outside of whales, your organization does a ton of other things. It has the Adopt the Beach program, you work with New Hampshire Sea Grant. So can you talk a little bit on the other things that your organization works on? Yeah, our mission is to protect marine life in the Gulf of Maine through research, education and inspiring action. And so the heart of why we started the organization was because Diana and I both loved whales and wanted to learn about them and protect them. But really to do that, we need to involve people as well and get them inspired. And the more we can do to get the message out about these animals and that they're here and interesting information about them and then get people involved in hands-on activities like beach cleanups uh, to create this community of people that are wanting to protect these animals and keep a healthy ocean. So we, we still uh, do the whale watches and collect data there, but we've also been doing beach cleanup since the early 2000s. And our rationale for that was we did a couple beach cleanups on our own. We're like, well, this is a great way to get the community involved in a hands-on way to protect whales and other marine life. They don't even have to go very far to do it. So we started hosting beach cleanups and then started an adopt a beach program because we were we were cleaning just one beach over and over kind of by ourselves. And we're like, well, there's many more beaches in the area. Uh, let's see if we can have a more a stronger effort at getting them clean and also documenting the litter we find. And we partnered up with the New Hampshire Coastal Program, which is part of the New Hampshire Department of Environmental Services. And they had had a adopt a beach program that required groups to adopt a beach and only clean it twice a year. And it was kind of a spinoff of the International Coastal Cleanup, which is a worldwide cleanup uh, conducted by the Ocean Conservancy and its partners. It basically, at that time, it was basically one day in September. And so they said, well, we have this Adopt-A-Beach program, but we don't really have the, the staff to run it anymore. Could we give you guys a grant to help run this program? And so we we kind of relaunched this Adopt-A-Beach program uh, and asked volunteers to adopt a site and clean it monthly and provide them all the supplies so they get data cards and, and bags and everything that they need. And so while they're out there cleaning the beach, which is great in itself, they're also uh, recording what they find. And so we've been documenting litter on our beaches since the early 2000s. And again, you know, we can look at patterns and look at what the problem areas are and if there's increases or decreases and and, you know, use the data that we're collecting to target our prevention efforts. So we've worked on like a skip the straw campaign locally because we were finding lots of straws on our beaches. We are now working on studying the microplastics because the microplastics, uh, the tiny pieces of plastic and foam that are on the beaches, they are always showing up in the top 10 items of the litter that we collect. And in addition to the beach cleanups, we do a lot of education programs. Uh, we actually have a life-size inflatable finback whale that we bring to schools and groups all over New England. And kids can actually go inside this 65-foot whale and see how big a whale's heart is. And it, we have ribs in there and a backbone and jawbone so they get an idea of how big some of the body parts of this whale. And um, it was actually modeled after a real live whale who unfortunately passed away a few years ago. But um, we can talk a little bit about that whale and how we'd seen him over time and how his, his life history and impacts that humans have on whales. Mm, I totally think I saw that inflatable somewhere. I'm trying to remember where. I think it was either the Boston Boat Show or something like that. Um, cool. But so just I just want to prod this a little more because I love all the work you guys are doing, cleaning the beaches and identifying, you know, what you find on them and stuff. In my mind, though, I don't know, correct, correct me if I'm wrong. I get the feeling that there's a much bigger problem, isn't there, in terms of the industrial waste, for example, and 
the oil spills and all these crazy things that that normal you know individual people don't can't change too much so how how do we get around that yeah there's a lot of problems out there i mean um one of the one of the one of the big problems that we try to teach people um we have a small education center in Hampton Beach New Hampshire and, and one of the themes we've been trying to teach people when they're down there and they ask what they can do is is we say basically refuse not reduce reuse recycle but first of all refuse and use less of things if you can so you know one of the the biggest problems is you know you have things like oil spills and whales getting hit by large vessels and too much carbon and a lot of that is driven by the fact that we all use a lot of stuff and we don't buy it very locally most of the time so so it does start with you know demanding you know making demands of manufacturers and politicians that we use you know prioritize the environment when we're decision making which we're not super good at in this country so far but it also can start at home as well as in just um thinking about things that you're using buying locally when you can um using less reusing things you know instead of buying something new maybe seeing if you can fix what you already have so there is a little bit of both a- another thing in addition to refusing we tell people one of the best things you can do is vote you know take it's we've all seen really clearly especially over the last several years the impacts that our votes can have on what goes on with the environment and you know other policies in our country so kind of um being informed about even at the local level what you know what your options are is during voting time and studying the politicians and what their views are and if you're concerned about the planet which we all should be because we all need a place to live you know voting for people that understand what's going on with the environment and understand science and it's important and you know there's a lot of our educational programs as well as just kind of teaching kids about science and and the importance of the ocean to the health of all of us and inspiring them no matter what they decide to take as a career path to you know think about the planet and kind of the impacts that we all can have going forward and looking ahead what are some of the future goals and projects for the blue ocean society One of the things we're doing is um trying to as I mentioned whales are getting closer to shore and which is great for whale watch boats because you know a lot of times we can uh go not go as far to find whales and then we get to spend more time with the whales and the trips are a little bit shorter but it also means that we're not in the last few years we haven't been able to study what's going on further offshore and so we've always had as a goal at some point to have our own research boat so um someday hopefully that's in the pipeline but um until then we've been trying to partner with charter boats to charter boats um during the off season like we've worked with um a local fishing fishing boat company to charter their boat in the springtime and try to get out on the water before the whale watching season and we did four of these cruises in the spring in April and May this year and one of the interesting thing was we saw um humpback whales out there that we only saw in the spring and nobody in the area saw them the rest of the year. So, we know we had we've known that there's probably been whales out in the spring earlier than the whale watch boats go out, but what now we know um how important this habitat probably is for them. Uh last year when we first started doing these surveys uh on our first survey, which was actually an Easter Sunday um in 2022, we saw four right whales and um we had never documented right whales in that area before but now we know maybe spring it's an important habitat for them off of this area so we've been trying to um find some funding to charter boats for the day and go out basically wherever we think that from a re- research perspective and um it'd be interesting to look for whales and and document what's there or on the flip side what's not there because that also gives us more information too. We've also been trying to solicit more reports from boaters. So all of you out there, especially if you're in the Gulf of Maine, you can go to our website and we have a spotter program that we created and we're uh, working to customize this app which is called Watch Spotter and you can download this app for free on your phone and you can use it to uh, report any whale sightings and photos of any whales you see out there as well as any litter that you see out there because we also study litter out in the water and try to get an idea of if that's increasing or decreasing and what the kind of problem items are. So, um but a great thing about this app if you're a boater, if you're in our local area at least, say you see a humpback whale and you're able to snap a quick 
picture of its tail with your phone, you can submit it via this app and our staff will look at it. And if it's a whale we recognize, we'll tell you all about it. So we might be like, for example, this is Pinball, who is a whale that we see over and over. I saw her a lot this year and maybe a little bit more about her history, if she's had a calf recently or not, um, where we last saw her and just get the boaters that are out there, hopefully more familiar with the whale populations, keeping an eye out for them, but also learning about these unique individuals that we have in this area. And other other things we've been studying, like I said, microplastics on our beaches in New Hampshire uh, since 2014. And we are just getting a large enough kind of sample set to really dig into that data statistically and look at the types of plastics, these tiny plastics that are showing up on our beaches. And we're trying to figure out what the source is so that hopefully we can prevent them eventually in the future. Uh, the number one type of plastic we see out there, these microplastics, is foam. So ma mainly polystyrene foam. So we're trying to figure out where that's coming from, if it's um, things like disposable coolers or um, dock floats or you know construction um, so we're working with an organization called Shaw Institute which is up in Blue Hill Maine and they're helping us analyze some of the polymers of these microplastics so hopefully we can do a little bit more to figure out where they are coming from and at the very least if they're coming from more of an ocean-based source like um, floating in from somewhere else or something going on out in the ocean or coming in from the land and kind of washing on the beach that way. Hmm. So could you, uh, with all the stuff that you guys have been up to, could you give us like a success story from Blue Ocean Discovery Center? Like something to make, to make everybody excited. We got, we figured this out. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think overall, um, one of the really cool things with our beach cleanup data, for example, is we did about 500 beach cleanups last year working with volunteers which is an amazing number. It was double the number of beach cleanups we were able to do um, any year before that. And the reason for that is the interest is so high in volunteering and helping protect the planet. And um, it really gives me hope because although, well, one thing that gives me hope also is that we go out there and, and huge accumulations of trash we used to find on some of our local beaches, those aren't there anymore. And part of it is because we've been doing this kind of sustained cleanup effort over time. But so the trash, you know, the, the weight of trash that we're removing from local beaches is going down, but the volunteer interest is still going up. So we have more volunteers every year. So that's really good news. We've also had some uh, student interns that work with us and uh, we had four interns this summer that helped us primarily with data collection but also our, our education programs and it's really inspiring to see their enthusiasm and a lot of our interns we've had over 100 interns over the years and many of them have gone into career fields related to uh, whales and environmental protection or working on climate change issues and things like that. Nice. And so I just want to build on that a little. How do we get more of the youth involved and what message would you like to convey to uh, you know, individuals, young individuals who want to contribute to marine conservation and, and the well-being of our oceans? Yeah, I would say, you know, overall for like administrators and policymakers, uh, science education is really important and getting kids outside, even if they're not doing a lab work outside or something like that, just being outside and kind of appreciating the environment is really important because, again, no matter what career field they end up in, environmental decisions and policies are going to impact all of us. And I would say for kids that are interested, you know, really any experience you can get can apply anywhere. We say that, you know, all the time to our interns, like you get a lot of good hands-on experience if you intern with us, but you're also going to get a lot of good experience if you are you know, the cashier at the local supermarket because you're learning how to interact with people and interact with different personalities and work as a team and all of that can apply. The exciting thing I'm seeing is uh, when I first did our internship uh, where I met Diana, you know, 20 something years ago, we volunteered all winter time and had to you know, basically foot our own way through there. And there has been an increase in uh, paid internships, which is great because, you know, the internship internships for a long time were kind of necessary to get your foot in the door and really competitive careers. But there were a lot of people that couldn't afford to do them because they couldn't afford to volunteer for the summer. So, so I'd say getting, you know, volunteer and intern experience where you can is really important. And we have a very small staff, but over the years when we are hiring people, when we do have a position available, um, oftentimes we have hired somebody that's interned or volunteered with us before, um, just because we know that person and how they work and 
also they're because they're really qualified, but um, really any experience helps and just get outside as much as you can and um, take in as much science as you can. So Jen, where can people find you and read more about what your organization is doing and potentially get involved? You can go to our website at blueoceansociety.org. We are also on a lot of social media channels. Uh, we're most active on Facebook and Instagram. And so uh, we definitely encourage you to reach out to us there. We're on LinkedIn as well. So uh, we'd love to hear from people that might be interested. And uh, we have a lot of volunteer opportunities and they range from all kinds of things. So helping with our discovery center down in Hampton Beach and teaching people about whales and tide pool animals, you can do that. Or you can help with our inflatable whale programs, or you can come in our office and um, help with things like putting together our annual mailing or we have volunteers sometimes uh, when we have big group beach cleanups, um, we have a whole bunch of data cards that come into the office and there's volunteers that um, just help us add up all the uh, litter items that they picked up so we can enter it into the database. So no matter what you do, you're interested in, we have volunteer options available. Awesome, Jen. Well, it was an exceptional conversation. Yeah, I have one sort of trippy question for you, Jen, though. I mean, you've spent so much time with these whales. Are you ever out there on a whale watch and you're like, I wonder what they're thinking? All the time. <laughs> I, I wonder what they're thinking is you only see about a third of their body at any given time. So often I'm wondering like what they look like. And there's been uh, recently pinball, this whale I was talking about earlier, we see, um, I've seen her hundreds of times over the last 20 years. And a couple years ago, she was seen down in the Turks and Caicos and somebody uh, with her new calf and somebody was snorkeling near her and took an underwater video. And that was the first time I had seen her whole body. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's actually what she looks like and what her whole face looks like. And, you know, um, which is kind of crazy. You just think of them as this tail or this fin or something like that. So, well, nice. it was awesome to uh, have this discussion with you, Jen. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Check back every Tuesday for our latest episode and be sure to like, share and subscribe to ShipShape.pro. Pro, 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 pro.